wins it off Hader in the bottom of the 10th inning. And you know where we're going. Pack your bags, folks. All aboard. Next stop, pound time. And here's the 1-0 pitch to Matt. Swung on, launched to left field deep. Matt going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And a miraculous comeback by the A's in the ninth is capped by Matt Chapman's three-run home run. And the A's have won the game. You're now listening to The C-Meds with Adam Copeland and Ted Ramey, only on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's the Seam Heads Podcast, back with you talking more A's baseball. Adam Copeland, Ted Ramey, the Bermudez Triangle, Rob Bermudez hanging out with us as well. Um, I guess, guys, the the probably what we should start off with, because we spent so much time on this the last episode, is the uh, the update on A.J. Puck. And I guess the update is mostly that uh, we knew that there was, there was no major structural damage, but now we're to the point where they're saying no clear timetable for him to return to throwing. That was as of a day ago. We're doing this on Sunday afternoon, March 8th. So um, that's a little bit interesting. I don't know if it's concerning or not. I don't know if that's good news, but the fact that it's a guy who has not pitched more than two innings in a professional baseball game since August of 2017, I think is is a little worrisome. Uh, you guys, I'll throw it out to you. How you doing? And uh, let's talk about AJ Puck. Yeah, I'm good, Copes. And uh, what's up, Bermudez Triangle? I do not like this no scheduled return date whatsoever. And I know that he also had what they're calling a pre-scheduled appointment with the orthopedist who did his uh, previous surgery. I just, uh, I don't like the sound of any of this, guys. Whenever there's an injury, it seems pretty clear that there should be like a return date. And like, I don't want the A's to start being like the Yankees where they got guys who broke their ribs months and months ago and only now are they figuring out what the problem is. I, I You should be able to identify pretty quickly if there's no structural damage. It's like, okay, so what is there? Inflammation? Okay, you get uh, some Advil or some ice or a cortisone shot and you're back throwing off a flat surface on this date or off a mound on this date. Like, there should this should not be something that's like no we don't know it's like well if there's nothing wrong then shouldn't it be just like a couple of days and then he starts throwing again like or shouldn't it be okay well he'll start throwing again as soon as his shoulder feels like there's no stiffness or soreness like I I don't know I just I didn't I didn't like the sound of that whatsoever maybe I'm overreacting but I I don't care for nebulous or not really defined dates with injuries makes me very nervous I'm a little more nervous than I was when we recorded on what day was that Thursday so it's it's been a couple days um, no news is good news isn't the approach I'm taking here I think it's serious enough that they're not saying just take a couple days off and then we're getting right back into it um, but at the same time I don't think he's going to miss three months of the season or anything like that I, I think it it's a little more concerning than he slept on it funny but I think the truth you know I'm not a doctor here but I just play one on TV I think the truth is somewhere closer in the middle of it's they're going to be extra careful with it, but it's not just a tiny, tiny little thing that, oh, nothing to worry about anymore. I think we can officially be the slightest bit concerned that it's a little more serious than initially uh, anticipated. Well, here, let me throw this at you real quick to both of you. Copes, before or after April 15th is when we will see A.J. Puck throwing for the A's. 
I'd say after April 15th. I think the fact that this has happened, uh, while it's even, it's early in March, we're still just three weeks away from opening day at this point. Um, you know, again, I, I don't know how much we need to, to hammer this because we spent so much time on it in the last episode or the last edition of the Seamheads. But um, this is a guy who's never made a major league start. You know what I mean? And you've got guys who have made big league starts like Chris Bassett. So I didn't hear Ken Korak say that. And we haven't heard comments yet from uh, from Bob Melvin on exactly whether or not Chris Bassett's the guy. I think it's OK to be presumptuous with that. He pitched so well last year in that role. Um, but I think I think we need to start putting more eggs in the basket of uh, this is probably a guy who's going to be a late inning relief pitcher than a guy who's going to be a 200 inning workhorse just because we've seen nothing to suggest that he is capable of doing that. The other thing that's funny, Ted, is you mentioned this a minute ago about New York Yankees pitchers like having broken ribs and guys not knowing for so long. I've never understood why when there is something, and I'm not saying this is a situation with with Puck because generally it has to do with Tommy John, but when there are guys who who it looks like they've got a, a sprained UCL or something wrong in the elbow and they say, well, I'm going to get the second and third opinion. I'm going to wait. I'm going to rehab it. The Giants did it with Johnny Cueto. They're kind of going through it right now with Tyler Beattie. We're seeing this with Chris Sale of the Red Sox. When a guy is hurt, I want to know where the pain's coming from. I want to shut him down. I want to get him right. Now, what's concerning about this is we have no idea where the pain's coming from. Shoulders are always more concerning to me than elbows because we know how to fix the elbow structurally. When it's a labrum or something up in your rotator cuff, that's often more damaging. We saw how long it took Sean Manaya to come back from that uh, last season, as well as, uh, as Jesus Lazardo was dealing with, with that sort of shoulder and, and labrum problem. Um, we saw this with Jeff Samarja of the Giants a couple of years ago where um, they didn't know what was wrong with him. His velocity was down. He couldn't get guys out. So they shut him down for the remainder of the season. He came back last year and he was much better, but he was nowhere near the same type of pitcher or workhorse that he had been in the past. So I don't know that there's a, a book or, or some sort of baseline for, for what's going to happen here, but I do think that because he's got a, a string of injuries and shoulder problems, he is just 24 years old or 23 years old, something like that. This is worrisome for me. I, I'm really not, uh, I'm, I'm not keen on this. I'm, I'm really happy about the other side of things with Jesus Lazardo, how those are going. And we'll talk about that, but the AJ puck stuff is scary for me. I, I do think if you're saying April 15th, not March 15th, I think he'll be pitching before April 15th. It's a matter of how many innings he's going to pitch for me. I don't think he's going to be stretched out and be starting games for the Oakland A's uh, by April 15th, but I think he will have some innings. I, I would, again, this is pure speculation. I don't have any insider knowledge or anything. I just, the way that they've talked about it kind of leads me to believe, yeah, it's not serious enough where we're thinking about surgery. We just want to give it plenty of time to rest so it doesn't become something more serious. So I could imagine another week or so off, no throwing, and then starting his throwing regimen again and, and being involved in, in that late couple games of spring training out of the bullpen, or even if it's starting for only a, an inning or two or maybe three. But uh, I don't expect him necessarily to be coming back and, and saying, okay, I'm going to be part of the rotation. I'm going to give you 180 innings next year. But I do think he will be pitching before April 15th. Uh, Ted, where are you on that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, well, I'm just going to say, Kopi, you and I are witnesses on that statement. We're not putting any money on this because that's weird to bet on injuries. But I'm just saying the Rob thought that he was – uh, that he'll be back by then, and I, I don't. I, I just, again, my experience in situations like these is one of, I, you know, when there's not a clearly defined date on an injury, you get into that open-ended nature for a reason, and I think that that could be that maybe they don't want to do anything that's going to slow down ticket sales for those first couple weeks of the season. Maybe they don't want to do anything that's going to 
get people down on them. Maybe they want to keep the momentum high. I mean, listen, I've worked for professional teams long enough that they, I'm not saying stories are slept on, but it's not like they're trying to put out bad news before the regular season begins. They might want to just kind of sleep this or downplay it for a reason. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, but it doesn't give me any sort of confidence that this is something that's going to be dealt with in the immediacy. So it, it, what it ultimately tells me is what we've been leaning towards since we first heard of this injury is that it is going to be Chris Bassett and he's 31 years old. He has experience. He's, he's not been a, uh, you know, an ace, but he's a guy who I have confidence in there to go out there in the five spot and give the A's some quality innings. He's not going to be the ceiling of what puck potentially has, but I'll certainly take it right now. If the A's have done one thing very, very well, over the you know last 20 years, it's always having that next arm ready to go or at least knowing where to go find that next arm. So the the other side of that, and, and you're talking about having the next guy up or the next guy who you can look at or, or shine a spotlight on, and I think it's the one that everybody's already excited about, and it's Jesus Lazardo. I mean, this is, you know, for being bummed about having A.J. Puck go down, and it's been a whole lot of wait and see with him for a couple of years now. Jesus Lazardo, it's been wait and see, but now it seems like we're starting to get some fruits of the labor of that waiting. So Lazardo yesterday in his Saturday outing, three and a third, two hits, one walk. He struck out eight. The guy gets 10 outs. Eight of them come by way of strikeout. A bunch of them were looking. I was watching some of the videos of the swings and misses. He has guys corkscrewing into the ground. Like guys just whiffing at outside fastballs, at sliders that are breaking away from him. It looks like he's going to be real tough on lefties. Righties are going to have a tough time turning on him. For a total in spring this summer, or excuse me, so far in the Cactus League, eight and a third in his three starts, 13 strikeouts, four hits, a run, and a walk. Um, I don't know if it's if it's... Uh, uh, naive or ridiculous to start talking about him in this nature yet, but I made the Tim Lincecum comparison. I think based on stature and, and body size, the the arm slot, the way this guy throws, the way he's getting swings and misses, is it ridiculous to start talking about him as a Cy Young talent at 22 years old? I don't think it's ridiculous. I personally think he's going to win the Rookie of the Year. I, the the ceiling for him is so enormously high. Uh, I know uh, the Pitching Ninja was was showing some video of the Tasmanian Devil swings of guys just, like you said, swinging out of their shoes and spinning around. Um, we're probably going to see plenty of gifts of the uh, the White Castle special, the three nasty sliders. So he's just such a talented guy, and, and he's so poised. And it really does make you excited because, again, the one thing that what could stop a, a potential Johan Santana-type career, right? That's the comp he got a lot uh, in the past couple years, and the only thing is injury. But it, it, he's in this offseason, he says he's focusing a lot more on doing what he needs to stay healthy and not just going to the gym, but listening to his body. And, you know, it, it's something that when you're young and your arm feels great, you throw 130 pitches and you you get four hours of sleep and you feel fine because you're in your early 20s. You think everything's great. And then eventually that catches up with you. But when you have someone who's 21 years old, who's already saying, yeah, I'm prioritizing taking care of my body now because I'm understanding just how important it is. I, I think you have to be really excited. And, and my question is, you know, he's he's a talented guy, and there is that injury history that's there. Is this the kind of player that, hey, we've seen enough, we've seen only 30 innings in the big leagues, but do we start thinking about giving him a, a long-term extension? I know he's under contract for three years at the rookie minimum and then three years of arbitration, but if they see something they really like in this guy and they know that because of his injury history, they might be able to say, look, do you want some guaranteed certainty? Here's a eight-year, 10-year contract and and get your money right now? 
Yeah, I mean, with any pitcher, there's always concerns about locking him up because they're always one, you know, one outing away from a blown UCL or a torn labrum or something to that extent. But, I mean, the talk around him is like that. I mean, there there's rarely been prospects where you've heard this type of talk, and this is the guy who it's there. I mean, what, he's ranked as the number four prospect in all of baseball, and, you know, he, what we're seeing him doing this spring. I mean, it is spring. These aren't real games. Guys are working on stuff at the plate just as much as they are on the mound, so you won't know exactly what it is until it's in a real game. But at the same time, there is a level of foolishness that you're kind of seeing associated with it that you only usually see from extreme talents like Kopi alluded to with the Tim Lincecum or like with the Randy Johnson of recent nature where guys look lost at the plate. That's that's the thing that's that's most telling to me. And I don't know if that's because his stuff is deceptive in terms of how his release point is, in terms of how his windup is. I haven't been able to take him in in, in person. So I think once I get an idea of that, I'll have a greater understanding of it but man I mean it it just it, it, it's pretty nasty and the way people are talking about him it's it's pretty it's it's rare praise it's rarefied air that he's kind of entering which makes it that much more scary that there is a quote-unquote injury history but I also think well, I mean what pitcher do we not say that about yeah dude I, I think you're right in saying um you know there's that saying that hitters will tell you how good your stuff is. I think that's absolutely true in the case of Jesus Lazardo and that you watch him face these guys. And and you said it, guys look lost at the plate. And Randy Johnson, sort of, some of that started because guys were like afraid to be up there. You didn't know where the ball was going to go. It's throwing like 98, 99 miles an hour. Sometimes it'd go behind. Sometimes he'd hit the, uh, hit the effing bull, right? He'd throw it uh, up behind a hitter. But um, Lazardo seems, as you guys have both talked about, he seems poised. He seems to have pinpoint control. His only walk of spring so far coming um, in that start yet yesterday, Saturday. Um, I do want to make note of this. So in talking about, and I know Rob mentioned, like, do you start talking extension? I can't go that far yet for a guy who I haven't seen pitch a full season yet. And historically that hasn't gone well for, for teams who have given extensions to players before establishing themselves at the major league level. Blake Snell was kind of a rare one in arbitration. Remember the Astros gave that guy, John Singleton, a big contract before he'd ever even come out of the minor leagues. Um, but I look back at, and we're talking potential like Cy Young talent, that kind of stuff. You got to look back. I mean, Ted, you know about the, the Doc Gooden or Dwight Gooden in 1985 going as a 20 year old. Uh, Saber Hagen did it the same year. He was seven months older. He was 21 years old uh, back then. And I think he's the youngest in the American League. So 22, we have seen it and we've seen it with the A's. Vita Blue did it in 71 as an MVP season. Uh, he was 22 years old. Tim Lincecum was 24. Kershaw was 23 when they first got their, uh, their early ones. But I think it tells you how difficult it is to pitch as a young guy in the major leagues. We see Juan Soto come up as a 19-year-old, Acuna as a 20-year-old, and immediately make an impact at the big league level with a bat. Uh, we saw it with Bryce Harper, uh, but but very seldom does it seem like guys come up with this talent at this young of an age. And I know he's not 20, he's 22, but he's a true 22. He doesn't turn 23 till September. So I do think we could be looking at, uh, at a pitcher in rarefied air, at least at this young stage of his career. It's pretty wild right now to, to even have this conversation because it just, it, you know when you're dealing with the talent. It's interesting that we've used the comparison of Tim Lincecum and Randy Johnson, and we've also been talking about A.J. Puck, and this is why I want to see Lazardo more in person because since Randy Johnson, the guy who had the closest release point to the plate after that was Tim Lincecum because he had the freaky hip extension and just the weird body whip and the big, you know, we've all seen Tim Lincecum's uh, entire delivery. It was very, very strange. And then you go to the next guy, A.J. Puck. He's supposed to have that re release point 
that's way out there like Randy Johnson, like Tim Lincecum. And now we bring up Jesus Lazardo, who was just doing things a little bit differently. I know that Rob said there has been the the Santana reference, and you know, again, that's then injuries come into play, and God, even you know, no no one knows where it goes from there. But you, you love the hype, you love hearing about things like this, and it is something for fans to get excited about. I mean, when I look at A's message boards, when I look at A's Reddit, when I look at these other you know the different places fans go to talk about the A's. He is the topic du jour. I mean, yes, there is consternation regarding A.J. Puck, but fans, as excited as they've they've been about Olsen and Chapman and the potential of uh, Barreto or Jorge Mateo, Jesus Lazardo is right now the guy that's making A's fans excited for the start of the year. Um, It's funny talking about these young pitchers because it seemed like for so long we had so many that A's fans and, and really within the A's organization people were excited about. And one that came up, and it's funny, just this has kind of become a topic, and this is going to tie into, I think, a little bit of the second base conversation that uh, that we want to get into about the backup position in the battle in spring behind Tony Kemp between Mateo and uh, and Franklin Barreto. We haven't touched on that in a couple episodes. But I was looking at The Athletic, uh, our, our great website and, and provider here of all things Oakland A's baseball, and Ken Rosenthal had done a uh, – uh, an article earlier this week um, about the sort of evaluating the Sonny Gray trade. And I thought that's kind of an interesting trade to look back on. And the reason he gets into it is because when the A's traded Sonny Gray to the Yankees, of course, they got back three players that we thought were going to be impactful. Dustin Fowler, Caprillion, and then uh, Jorge Mateo. Now, Mateo and Caprillion yet to to really make any sort of impact. Dustin Fowler has not been very good at all. And he's one for 15 in the spring as of the recording of this podcast. But on the other side of things, Sonny Gray wasn't all that great for the the Yankees. So the reason I bring this up is the discussion about this was, can the A's still salvage something from that trade? How much value can they still pull from that Sonny Gray trade? And it's really focused on Jorge Mateo. And the reason I bring that up is because obviously we're seeing him in a, a battle for the second base position, but we also had an outing yesterday and, and, uh, the Bermuda Triangle made us aware of this as we were coming in. Nick Allen, uh, a young shortstop who's probably going to start the year in Double A in Midland, Texas, is uh, is a a decent hitter. He's had a, a decent minor league average over three seasons, two fifty eight. And you got to wonder with Marcus Semien potentially leaving in free agency if he doesn't get an extension this year, where do the A's go in that middle infield spot? You could have two gaping holes there. So I'll put it out to you guys. We could talk Jorge Mateo and Barreto, and then maybe we'll go to Bermudas for for some Nick Allen uh, in depth discussion on that. Well, I'll just point out the one thing that I've liked that I've seen out of Barreto as of late is that his average has started to kind of creep its way up into the 280s. I think it was up to 286, whereas earlier in the spring he was sitting 240, 250, which was what we had kind of seen from him, you know, or worse. So I like the fact that, obviously, spring, but I like the fact that his bat's getting going a little bit more because, to me, with Barreto, that's just been the the big concern is what can he do with his bat, what can he do with extended levels uh, play at the level of major league baseball and it hasn't really been there so if if he's starting to find himself a little bit more if this spring is finally allowing him that opportunity to turn into the player that he's been you know hyped up to be then great it's it's about time you would love to see it but at the same time I always have to temper that by saying well yeah it's also spring so I can only derive so much but I do like the fact that his average has been creeping up you guys kill me, by the way, with all this talk of batting average. It's like it's it feels like we're talking in 1998 again. Uh, the oh, you thing mean that, when the game was entertaining? Well, I still think the game is plenty entertaining. Don't be that old person that says baseball isn't what it used to be. Um, Dude, it's I'm sorry. <laughs> the three true outcomes is terrible for baseball. Like hashtag no more nerds. 
Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you what, like, I'm, I'm all about analytics, but I'm not about, like, presumptive analytics. Like, I don't really care. Like, the, the fielding independent of pitching, like, I know that that's an important one people look at because it tells you how good a pitcher is based on what he does by himself without the defense. But the pitcher's never playing without the defense. He's always out there with the defense. And here's my thing is, if the guy's already on your team, who cares? It's your defense. You can look at that statistic, I think, if you want to gauge how good, like, a free agent is coming into your organization. But what good does it tell me how good a pitcher is without my defense when he's going to be out there every game with my own defense it's it's sometimes the analytic of like a a what may happen here or what we think is going to happen based on what's happened in the past is a little presumptive and I think I think that we've we've definitely lost an element in the game now I'm not acting like batting average is the end-all be-all but when I look at a guy who's got a 600 OPS there's something to be said about that right I mean those guys usually aren't good hitters Yes, and Barreto does not have a 600 OPS coming into no, I'm today's not, I game. Was, no, but, uh, but, but, Nick, OPS. but Nick Allen, Nick Allen does. So that's where yeah. I'm going with that. Well, yeah. the, the thing about Nick Allen is, you look earlier in his career, he was trying to, you know, swing a bat like he was Alex Rodriguez, and he's not. He's like five foot eight on a good day, I think. I mean, he's he's not a big guy. And the the selling point on Nick Allen isn't what he can do with his bat. The selling point is he is the best if the best or second best defensive shortstop in all of minor league baseball. He's got a plus glove, a plus arm, plus speed, and plus instinct. So we've seen him even as recently as last year in big league spring training make some truly spectacular plays with the glove. And uh, the fact of the matter is last year before he had the ankle injury in Stockton, he was swinging a very hot bat. He was not trying to hit home runs, but he was you know, getting a little stronger, a little more physically mature, and he was driving the ball into the gap. So he was among the league leaders in doubles and, and was doing a good job of getting on base. My Going back to Barreto, what I like from Barreto is he started off a little cold, and what we've seen over the last five, six, seven games isn't just that he's starting to hit again. He's got a couple triples, but he also has, like I want to say, four or five walks in the last five or six games. And with Barreto, the, the biggest issue they have with him is his plate discipline, right? Right? They they know the bat speed is there. They know he can hit 260 in the big leagues. It, it, I don't think that's the issue. The issue is that they want to make sure he's swinging at the right pitches. Because when he is staying within his zone, his bat is powerful enough. And you keep hearing it. He gets an, he gets an RBI single, 105 off the bat. He gets a triple, 107 off the bat, right? Like, the, the tools are all there. It's a matter of can he be more patient? And we've we've even heard like uh, Mark Canna, for instance, talk about it. When he started refining his strike zone, he realized he was playing center field. He saw just how many off-speed pitches were being thrown. And the, the general trend in baseball is that pitchers are trying to get you to chase. So he, he trimmed down his strike zone. He really tightened up. And all of a sudden, we see the offensive explosion that we've seen from Mark Canna and I think to a certain extent with with Barreto and when you're the front office and you're looking at what's going on in spring training you have to take everything with a grain of salt is the pitcher that's out there working on his fastball and throwing 20 of them in a row he might be and so that as, as a hitter you have an advantage knowing hey he's just throwing a fastball but I think what we're seeing from Barreto is a good approach at the plate it doesn't look like he's just selling out for power trying to hit everything over the fence it looks like he's being a little more selective and if you're just looking from a developmental standpoint, I think he is showing strides. And again, we, we forget the fact that when we're looking at this battle between Barreto and Mateo, Franklin Barreto has been in AAA for parts of three seasons, right? He's hit every single time he's been down there. Jorge Mateo had, a, had the best offensive season he's had in AAA and, and 
Franklin Barreto had a, a even better season. So I think as of right now, Tony Kemp has been impressing. Franklin Barreto has been impressing. And Mateo has had a good game here and there. But I haven't seen the consistency as of late from, from Mateo. It's kind of one really good game sprinkled in. Whereas Barreto, I think, is starting to, to kind of settle in. Maybe the initial expectations in spring training were weighing on him early. But now he looks locked in. Well, so if that's Barreto kind of getting the message like, hey, I've got to be as disciplined as they want me to be, then that's good. Then that means that they're getting that growth out of him. And I know that, like we keep on saying, it's spring, but you can only respond in the arena you're playing. And right now he's playing in Cactus League. So if that's what we're judging it off of and there is improvement, then you have to take that seriously because I think that when you compare him to Kemp, I think if you're the A's, you know, if you're Bob Melvin or you're the front office, you're saying, who has the greater ceiling and who behooves this franchise in the long term in terms of an investment, and that's obviously going to be Barreto. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate what Kemp can bring, but if now is the time to maximize this growth stage of Barreto, then you have to take advantage of that. I completely agree, and and what I think the A's should do and what they might end up doing is giving Barreto that kind of pro-far approach. Like, if you remember last season, uh, Jerickson Profar got off to a brutal start at the plate, was having issues in the field, and a lot of people, were, myself included, were clamoring, hey, let Franklin Barreto come up. But they said, let's give him more than a couple weeks. Let's give him more than a month to kind of get comfortable with the new team. And so I would like to see Barreto get, at the very least, a month of regular playing time. I don't want to see a straight platoon with Tony Kemp because I think that does more harm long-term to his development. And at the end of the day, I think one really interesting factor that'll maybe make some decisions for the A's is the health of Steven Piscotty. I mean, uh, he's still out with the rib injury. They're saying there's a good chance he might not even be back for opening day. If that's the case, that opens up a roster spot and you can go one of a couple different ways. One, you can say we got Loriana, Loriano, Canna, and Grossman in the outfield, and then you can have Tony Kemp He's played in the outfield before, so that opens up some some opportunity for Franklin Barreto to kind of lock down that everyday second base position. Or if you look at guys like Franklin Barreto has played some outfield in the past too, so if they're looking for a right-handed outfield bat, I think they're going to find a way to mix and match Barreto between second base and the outfield to make sure he's getting, if not every day at bats, almost every day at bats. Because it's also a time where, look, you need to know this is the season. You see what he can do in the big leagues, and if after a month or two, you think he can't make it, then you got to move on from him. But you need to give him an actual chance because his actual chances are reminiscent of Matt Olson's chances a few years back where he was just on that yo-yo, up and down, triple-A, big leagues, two at-bats here, two at-bats there. And and that was not uh, – I think it was detrimental to his overall development. It's it's also crucial because, as we mentioned before, this is the final year of the Marcus Simeon contract. And it's it's sure it's make or break for Mateo and Barreto, but it's also for the A's to figure out where they go beyond this season with that position. And do they have to dip in to a, a Nick Allen layer or level of, uh, of talent at some point closer in the future than they, they were anticipating? And I think there's a case to be made from a baseball standpoint that the 28 year old Marcus Simeon that we saw last year was maybe the best form of Simeon that we'll see. Uh, and, and should the A's focus their resources on keeping guys like the Mats rather than uh, than a guy like Marcus Simeon? I think it's a, a conversation worth having, but I think think that conversation becomes a, a bigger one if Mateo and Barreto are either extremely good or or not to the level that they need to be at. I'll ask you guys before we get out today, um, is Marcus Simeon the opening day shortstop for the A's in 2021? Well, I'll hear that. Now, I had this conversation over the weekend 
And I would say that all depends on whether or not a definitive mark on when the A's might great break ground will be. And I think that is going to be the first domino to fall in terms of what the A's do with Marcus Simeon, with the Mats, and, and a couple other decisions they have going forward because they are potentially entering an era in which they'll have huge new stadium revenues to pay and keep players. What a concept. But I think that's – I don't think that question can be answered until you have a definitive date on the breaking of ground. Ted, it's a podcast. Just answer the question. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> can't. This is brutal. This All right, is brutal. Rob, Rob, what do you got, dude? Is Semyon starting next year or not? It was just, it was just for, yes. for fun. Yes, the answer is man. yes. And yeah. for me, it's a matter of he either gets after this season. I think part of the reason is the A's know coming off a top three MVP season that the uh, asking price is going to be pretty high. So I think they're going to say, let's see. We would love for him to have another season like that and make the price go up, 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 because that means another great season, another year of competing, getting into the playoffs. But I think the worst case scenario is he underperforms and the A's offer him a qualifying offer and he takes it. The best case scenario is he balls out as another MVP finalist and the A's extend him. But I, I do think that you know, if nothing else, they do have that qualifying offer. So even if he doesn't end up re-signing, he's not playing shortstop for the A's in 2021, they'll get a draft pick out of it. Ted's like a, Ted's like Dave Cavill. He's got to do like an environmental health study before we can get an answer out of him <laughs> just to see if, uh, if uh, Semyon's going to start next year. Dude, I've been around the A's for far too long to try and answer questions like that. I, there's mitigating circumstances. All right. Well, we'll keep monitoring the second base battle. Uh, I, I assume we will not have an update on AJ Puck by the uh, by the time we record later this week. But we will come back with some more A's talk for you. So thanks for listening to the Seamheads. If you're enjoying it, we ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll talk to you guys later this week. Peace. Peace. <laughs>